And here Jesus prays these words. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us go to God in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, when I was a kid growing up in West Texas at the Christian church that I attended in Sunday school, we learned sword drills. Is anyone familiar with sword drills? A few, a few of you are familiar with sword drills. Sword drills, um, there's, there's the easy way that they start out in which uh, the teacher or the leader of the class calls out a scripture, uh, a book and a number, and the first one to flip to it and able to read it gets wins. But there's the more advanced version then of when the leader begins saying, well, where does it say this? And you begin flipping and try and find it that way. And the reason they're called sword drills is because the full body, the, the full armor of God, the Bible is listed as our sword. It's our weapon. We have the word of God, the truth of God given to us. So this morning, the reason I say this is this morning going through scripture, it might feel as if you were in the middle of a sword drill. Because one of the best ways, I believe, to interpret scripture isn't with an illustration or a story of something that I found cute or funny this week, but rather to interpret it with God's own word and let God's word interpret itself for us this morning. And so that's the plan. And so we're going to begin not in John 17, 11, and 12, but in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. And if you remember Hebrews from a couple years ago is the book that's written in which it continually tells us that Jesus is the great high priest. And it's here that it's written in chapter 7, verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently, that's Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, here the author tells us that Jesus, the great high priest, always lives to make intercession for them. That's those that he has saved to the uttermost. It's those that he has gone to the cross to bear the weight of their sin and offer his blood as an atoning sacrifice for believers in Jesus. Always lives to make intercession for them. And that's what Jesus is doing here in John 17. Now that we've gotten through some introductory parts of his prayer in which he reminds God of how great he is. He reminds God of their covenant of redemption. And then he tells us exactly who he is praying for. Remember, he says, all mine are yours and all yours are mine. And so he's praying for those that have come to the Father through him. 
And now Jesus is here to make intercession. Intercession being that Jesus is going to intervene on our behalf, on the behalf of believers. Jesus is there sitting next to God at the right hand on the throne of grace and prays on our behalf, intervenes with God on our behalf. See, in John chapter 13, verse 1, it's written, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Right here, as Jesus begins his prayer for us, in verse 11, we, say, we hear him say, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. To the Father. Jesus, when we talk about him, we often talk about his, his death, his atoning work on the cross, and then his resurrection. But equally as important is his ascension to the right hand of God. It's the completion of this covenant of redemption that Jesus is sitting there next to God on the throne of grace, interceding on our behalf. And it's something that Jesus told the disciples right as they gathered for the Passover. He said, the hour has come. It's time for me to depart, to leave this world, and we are left in this world. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and six through 16, it's written, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us... Hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, when Jesus goes and leaves this world and goes to the Father, it's important that he ascends to the right hand of God and is there on the throne of grace because Jesus is our mediator between ourselves and a holy God because without Jesus, we cannot face a holy God. Without Jesus who has saved us, who has covered us with his blood, we would burn in God's presence. We could not take it. But here we have a high priest, a high priest who sits at the right hand of God, who sits on the throne of grace. So therefore, when we pray, when we are in times of need, when we are in sorrow, when we are in grief, we can go to God with confidence because our mediator, our great high priest is sitting there next to God, interceding, intervening on our behalf, reminding God, this, this is my brother, this is my sister. This is who I went to the cross and my blood covers. And so here in verse 11, Jesus prays that he is leaving this world, that we are left behind in this world. He's going to the Father, yet we're still here. And so he's telling us, he's telling God exactly who it is he's praying for. He's not only praying for believers, but he's praying for believers who are still in this world, who are are not yet in the wonderful presence of the Lord in heaven. And the reason he prays for those of us in the world 
is because the world is full of sin and destruction and darkness and the evil one. For you see, Jesus warned earlier in John 15, beginning in verse 18, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, Jesus tells us that the world is a dangerous place for the children of God because we are no longer of the world. For the scripture tells us that we are the church, the ecclesia, the people called from the world to God, to be set apart as a people holy, to be set apart as a people to bring glory to God that we would live different, act different, worship different, that our lives would be ordered and structured different than that of the world, that our priorities would not match the world. And because our purposes are not the same as the world's, but are the same as God's, we will be hated. So the world's a dangerous place for the children of God. And that's why Jesus prays for those who are left here in the world while he ascends until we can make it there. And it's here that he lists two things that he's praying for believers still in this world. The first thing he tells us is that he's praying for our security. He says this, he says, keep them, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Keep them. He prays for our security, not because we deserve it, because we don't deserve it. We are rebellious, forgetful, sinful bunch, but because of Christ's supreme work, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve to have this security, yet because Christ is our mediator, he prays for our security, and he reminds us that all his are God's, and all God's are his. Because we belong to Jesus, we belong to God. And because we belong to God, we are utterly dependent upon Jesus. And for our security, for our salvation. So Jesus prays for our security, reminding God that we are his. See, earlier in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says his Father is greater not only are we in Jesus' hands, but because we are in Jesus' hands, we are in God's hands. And God's hands are the greatest hands of all. And nobody can be snatched out of God's hands once you are placed in them. This is to give us security and assurance of our salvation. That Jesus, our mediator, our high priest, is there on the throne of grace reminding God, keep them. Keep them in your name. Because when we're in God's hands, you cannot be snatched out. 
by the world. You cannot be snatched out by the evil one. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you cannot be taken away from God. And when Jesus prays in verse 12, when he says, I have guarded them, I have lost none except for the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas, the son of destruction, the son of ruin. The one who he announced earlier in John 6 that there are 12 he is called, but one is a devil. That it is here that he reminds us only Judas was lost. And he, and he goes on to prove it in John 18, because immediately after this prayer, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there the soldiers have come and they said, which one is Jesus? And Jesus answered in verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Even up to the point of Jesus' suffering, he was still looking out for the security of believers left in this world. This is the heart of our Savior. And because we belong to Jesus, we belong to God and so we are in God's hand, and Jesus is guarding us, and so therefore God is guarding us. And so we can join with the Apostle Paul in rejoicing with these words that there I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen? What a powerful thing it is to know that because Jesus is our mediator, because we are in his hand, we are in God's hands and cannot be snatched. And so we can say those words with confidence, with the utmost confidence. So our hope is not some wishful dream, but our hope is a sure hope founded in Jesus the Christ. And so we gather right along with the apostle Peter when he writes his first letter. And there in the third verse, he writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus the Christ. That no matter our suffering, no matter what we may lose that is of and in this world, we cannot lose what is most precious to us, and that is our eternal security in Christ Jesus. Because you're in his hands, it can't be taken away from you. And so though we go through sorrows and griefs and trials of various kinds, we can rejoice. The other thing Jesus prays for here is he, he prays for our unity. Specifically, he says that they may be one even as we 
are one. Now, he's not praying for us to get along with each other in the church. No, that's a different issue that the Bible addresses in many different places. What Jesus is praying for here isn't some practical external unity, but he's praying for a deeper spiritual unity, a unity that is likeness of that of the Trinity, a unity of a oneness of mind, body, and spirit. This is the unity that Paul writes about in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, when he writes these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. This is the unity that Jesus is praying for. And he prays for it again in his prayer in verse 21, when he prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, in verse 22, he prays for our unity, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. And here, you hear what he's saying here? He does it again in verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. For it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This unity that Jesus prays for the believers here in this world is about the will of God. For our unity to match that of the Trinity is that God and Son, two persons, one will. God and Jesus, two persons, one power. This unity that Jesus prays for is so that in the accomplishment of God's work on earth, we must join with him in doing things the way he wants them done not the way we think is best or most practical or most pragmatic. To do things the way God would have them done would to be of his will. To do things as we would have them done would to align our purposes with that of the world. And so this includes every aspect of our lives. It includes how we raise our children. The purpose and, and why we raise our children looks different than that of the world. Our job as parents, as believers, is not to raise kids to be good moral citizens that will go to a good school and get a good job and meet a nice person so that they can have kids and raise them to be good moral people and go to a good school, meet a nice person, get a good job, and so on and so forth. No, our calling is different than that of the world. Our calling as parents is to proclaim the gospel into the lives of our children. Not so that they'll be moral according to the world's standards, but so that they may know Jesus and kept in his hand, not snatched away from him. 
so that they may keep kingdom values over earthly values. It's in how we structure our day and our week. And you're here, you, you've come on the first day of the week to begin by praising the Lord, by praying to him, by hearing God's word spoken into your lives, to come to his table and be reminded once again that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for our salvation. But how does the rest of our week look? Do we structure it like the world's? Or do we structure it according to God's will? So that in all we do, we do for his glory. That in every step we take, in every act we do, with every word we speak and every song we sing with our tongue, it brings praise and glory to the Father in heaven. That our lives would be a worship to God. This includes how we structure the church. It includes in how we order things here within this community, do we order them according to God's will and how he laid out in Scripture? Or do we order them how we think the best business practices are? Our goal as a church is not to get rich or get big. Our goal of the, of the church is to bring glory to God and to do his will, to make disciples and to share the gospel. Not to make more money. Not to outgrow our neighbors. Those are the purposes of the world. The purposes of God are much different. For you see, for the prayer Jesus is praying for our unity is quite dangerous in our lives. It's countercultural to the world. It's what makes us living in the world even more dangerous. That those who are in Christ Jesus, would not conform to the purpose and the way of living in this world, that we would come and live our lives as a sacrifice for the glory of God. It goes against everything the world teaches us. See, our union with God and Christ by the Spirit gives us the power to be fruitful. That while suffering and evil, as Peter pointed out, will occur, while we might lose all sorts of earthly things, we will never lose Christ. So do not fear. Scripture tells us this 365 times. Why should we not fear? Because he says his Father is greater. And because we are in Christ Jesus, we are in God the Father and in his hands and cannot be snatched. So no matter what is taken from you in this earthly world, your salvation, which is your eternal security, will never be taken away from you. So because of that, because we can't lose the thing that's most precious to us, it makes us a dangerous people. It allows us to live fully in celebration and joy with cheer into the will of God that our unity, that despite the world, the suffering, and in our unity, the people of God would bear much fruit for the glory.
prospect. Heavenly Father, we are here this evening because we are so grateful that you have us in your hand and that we are in the Father's hand and cannot be snatched out. Lord, we are so grateful for the eternal security we have in Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a sufficient atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, we ask for courage, for courage to live into the unity that you pray for us, the unity that you have with the Father, the unity that it is no longer we who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in us. May it be so, Lord, with every step, with every day of the week, May it be so. Amen.